Why don't we start tonight in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6, what should be a very familiar portion of Isaiah's vision of the Lord in in heaven. We are um, we're engaged in between the other studies that Steve is doing in systematic theology and David is doing in various expositions in scripture. We're engaged in an ongoing study for my segments on Christ in the Old Testament. And I'm breaking down that study into three smaller sections. The first we've completed, which is the, um, the descriptions in prophetic anticipation of Christ's arrival, which we call Bible prophecies. And we spent a few weeks looking at most all of the most important Bible prophecies of the coming of Christ and um, set those into their own categories and uh, looked at them in some detail. Then the second section, which we're starting tonight, is the section on Christophanies, which have to do with the um, what we could call the actual glimpses of Christ as he's revealed in the Old Testament. And then we have a third section, which we won't get to for a while, but uh, that will be a study through, a very interesting study for me. I, I've always enjoyed doing it, and I hope you'll enjoy it when we go through it together, on types and shadows of Christ, which are more the, the symbols of Christ's presence and work throughout the Old Testament. So for tonight, as I said, we're going to be focused on Christophanies, and um, I want to start with a passage that actually could be considered a Christophany. Uh, it's somewhat um, debated as to whether it should be classified as a Christophany. But I, I want to start with this passage because it describes how we normally think of the Lord throughout the Old Testament or the Old Covenant portion of world history. Uh, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two, and this is now, of course, describing the seraphim, this special category of angels, unlike other angels. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, that's one seraphim, called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atone for. Now there's so much going on in this passage, and I'm not going to do a full exposition of the passage, but I wanted to point out that what Isaiah was 
blessed to see in God's purposes as as a, a critically important part of his overall prophecy as he was blessed to see a vision of what we would call heaven itself and of course in 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 the focal point the central focal point of what Isaiah saw as he was in a sense lifted into this heavenly realm so he saw a throne and he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne and it's as the descriptions continue what we learn is that this throne is set within a structure and the structure is called the house and it's a reference to what is referred to elsewhere in the old testament as the house of god it's really a representation but now in full heavenly glory not on earth but in heaven a representation of what we call the temple of god and there's an altar there like there's an altar in the earthly temple of god and there's uh there's a uh a burning fire that is occurring on that altar like the one on earth but the again the focal point of the vision is not so much the the house of the lord not so much the altar of god not the burning coals from the altar not the tongs not even the amazing seraphim that are that are in the picture here but the focal point is in verse one i saw the lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. So the idea being that in the Old Testament, the Lord is, it's not just a New Testament revelation, the Lord is revealed as being in a special sense, in a localized and fully glorified sense, he's revealed as being present in heaven, above the earth, beyond the earth, in its own realm, of course. Uh, let's look at one other passage, First Kings chapter 22 and i'm just choosing two as representative examples first kings 22 and this is during the days of ahab one of the um, one of the kings of israel and i'm going to start reading in verse Uh, we'll, we'll start reading verse 18. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? This, this was a conversation between the king of Judah and the king of Israel. Um, and the king of Judah's des, uh, desire was to consult a prophet as these two kings, one from the northern kingdom and one from the southern kingdom, were making plans to... Um, to cooperate with each other in an alliance. And the, the king of the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, wanted to, he wanted to consult a prophet before they took their next step together. And the king of Israel knew of a prophet, a true prophet, but he wasn't particularly thrilled about the idea of consulting with him. Um, it, it's a strong hint for us in terms of where the heart of the king of Israel was at, because if you know someone is truly speaking from the Lord and for the Lord and representing uh, the, the word of the Lord in the right way and yet your heart is I don't want to listen to this guy is essentially because he is not wanting to listen to the Lord but in the very next verse uh, the prophet Micaiah said therefore hear the word of the Lord so the prophet's going to prophesy anyway whether the king of Israel wants to hear it or not 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward. And then there's there's a whole exchange that takes place between the Lord and these various spirits that are that are presenting themselves before the throne of God. And what happens next is not so much the focal point of, of why I wanted to read the passage. I wanted to read this one in parallel with the Isaiah passage just to show that there are clear passages in the Old Testament that reveal God as being especially present in heaven, the Lord sitting upon his throne in the heavenly realm. And of course, that's true of the Lord today even. But in the Old Testament, the Lord has also chosen at times to reveal himself as being in a special way present on earth, not just present in heaven. So in this sense, we have to, when we're doing theology in the right way, we have to think of the Lord in terms of theological categories. It doesn't mean that we're slicing up the Lord and and dividing him from himself, setting one aspect of who the Lord is against another aspect of who the Lord is. But the Lord has revealed himself to us in more than one way. And it's important for us to rightly categorize how he has chosen to reveal himself to us, because in each revelation, there's a different emphasis and a different message for our hearts and for our lives. And so in one sense, we know that the Lord reveals himself in scripture as being omnipresent. And omnipresent just simply, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it just simply means that there is no place in all of creation. There is no place in all of existence where the Lord is not present. That he is everywhere, all at once, existent and real and present. But there is another sense that... God reveals his presence in scripture that is location specific, meaning he makes his presence known more in one location than he does in every other location for that moment in history for a specific purpose. Many, many, many examples of this through scripture, but I'll just name a few, for instance. Uh, During the days of the Garden of Eden, the Lord revealed himself as being more present in the garden within the boundaries of the walled garden that was known and named by the Lord as Eden, then he was outside of the boundaries of the garden. He's omnipresent everywhere, but while that garden existed, he was more present there than he was anywhere else. Uh, During the days of Moses, of course, the Lord chose to make himself known and more evident in his presence on the summit of Mount Sinai when he brought the children of Israel to camp at the foot of the mountain and called Moses up to meet him on the mountaintop as the Lord was veiled, in a sense, in the the, uh, glory cloud of his presence. And as Moses entered the cloud, he was in the immediate and direct presence of the Lord more so than he was at the foot of that same mountain where the children of Israel were veering off course and worshiping the golden calf. And this is true throughout 
the Lord's revelation history. He wants us to hold both categories in our understanding. In one sense, he's everywhere present. In another sense, he chooses to be more present in specific locations. And so the two specific locations that are revealed in the Old Testament where the Lord makes himself more fully known than just his omnipresence is in heaven, seated upon the throne, And the emphasis there is always on the administration of his kingdom government and his unfolding purposes for all of history. And then he also chooses to reveal himself on earth, as I just named a couple of examples. Now, those times when God makes his presence known on earth are primarily in the passages we're going to be studying and the focus of what we're going to be concerned about are times when the Lord makes himself known in a a way of perceiving his presence in familiar terms. What I mean by that is the Lord chooses to make himself known to human beings when he appears on earth throughout the Old Covenant and the Old Testament time period in a revelation or an appearance of familiarity. Now, those times are what theologians have come, have coined a term. It, you won't find the term anywhere in the Bible, but it's a good term. It's a biblical concept, and we're just going to follow the, the use of the term because it's, it's um, well accepted through the history of theology, uh, good, healthy theology, and that is these appearances of the Lord in terms of familiarity are what we call a theophany. Now, that's just simply a combination word of two Greek words, theo or theos being the word in the Greek language for God himself, and phany, P-H-A-N-Y, is the word which refers to an appearance of someone or something. So you put the two together and you have simply a a brief and basic description of an appearance of God himself. Now, I'm calling this set of studies that we're going to be doing not by that term, theophany. I'm choosing the alternative term, and the alternative term is Christophany, which simply would point to, in an even more specific way, in the Old Testament, when we see God appearing in terms of familiarity, to the human beings that he's revealing himself to, he's appearing as the second person of the Godhead, as the Son of God, as Christ, the chosen and anointed one. But these are appearances, of course, that precede his incarnation as a human being in Bethlehem. Now, there are some theologians that would argue and say, Uh, And I don't agree with this perspective, but it's not a huge difference between them and my perspective. There were some that would say, you'll find in the Old Testament both theophanies and Christophanies. And they'll, they'll identify two separate categories as though sometimes God himself reveals himself in terms of familiarity. And sometimes Christ reveals himself in the Old Testament in terms of familiarity. I don't believe that. What I believe and am convinced of, and I'm going to try to demonstrate throughout the course of our study, is that every theophany, every Old Testament appearance of God himself is also rightly identified as a Christophany. 
meaning I don't believe God himself has ever appeared in human history in this familiar form. And we'll talk about what forms I'm describing in just a moment. But I don't believe he's ever appeared. God himself has ever appeared in in those familiar ways in the Old Testament when it wasn't the Son of God who was appearing. In other words, the question is, would God the Father have ever appeared in Old Testament history in this, this familiar format? Or are all of the Old Testament appearances appearances of the Son? So let's look at three passages in the New Testament real quickly. And what I'm going to be doing tonight, just, just so you're able to track with what, what we're focused on tonight, is I'm doing kind of an introduction to the concept of Christophanies. And we will look at um, one specific example toward the end of our study of a Christophany. And then we're going to save the, the list that I've developed for our coming studies. But let's look first in the Gospel of John. And what we're looking at in these three passages are in any of the Old Testament appearances of God, is it God the Father who is appearing or is it God the Son? Uh, This is from John's Gospel, chapter 1. And we're going to read, and this is describing, by the way, of course, the incarnation of Christ. But there is a statement a theological declaration that John makes that clarifies the question that I'm asking. We'll start in verse 14 of John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word here is a reference to the person of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then this theological clarification in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So uh, I don't want to get too deep into the theological weeds here, but in verse 18, when John says, no one has ever seen God, he's referring to the first person of the Godhead who we know by the teaching and instruction of the Lord Jesus as God the Father. No one has ever seen God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, however, He has made Him known. So now He switches to an emphasis or a focus on the second person of the Godhead, who is God the Son. And essentially what Paul, uh, excuse me, John's point is, is that no one has ever seen God the Father, and yet God the Son in His incarnation was seen and was able to make God the Father known through his own presence here on earth. All right, let's look at a second one. Colossians chapter 1. 
And again, we're just looking at these three passages to set a boundary around our understanding to explain why we shouldn't, as we're studying the Old Testament appearances of God, why we shouldn't expect to see God the Father in those appearances, but instead should expect to see God the Son. Colossians 1, and we're reading from verse 15. He here is a reference to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All right, so I read the whole section just to get the fullness of the sense of this great proclamation that Paul is making in the the letter here. But what I wanted to really emphasize is found in the very first verse, 15. He is the, he, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So who is the invisible God that he is the image of? That is God the Father. So both now in the John 1 passage and in the Colossians 1 passage, the references to God the Father emphasize his invisibility. Let's look at a third passage and for this one, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll read verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So theologians recognize and acknowledge that that Paul here in this passage is describing the, the one that we identify as the first person of the Godhead who is God the Father. And here for a third passage, his... Description emphasizes his invisibility. Now, the only question we have then to resolve, and this is one that's never directly addressed in Scripture, but we can draw our own theological conclusions from the declarations that are made in Scripture, and I think we can be really confident about our conclusion. The question is this God is revealed, God the Father is revealed as invisible. The question is, does that ever change for him? In other words, maybe for a period of time at a certain part in history, God the Father was invisible. And then maybe later he chose to make himself visible. And if he made himself visible, what would that require of him in making himself visible? It would require of him taking a form so that we could perceive and see 
his form? And the answer is that aspect of who God the Father is never changes. It hasn't changed from Genesis 1.1 and even in eternity past preceding Genesis 1.1. It hasn't changed from Genesis 1.1 all the way through to the end of what is revealed in Scripture. And continuing on to our present day in history, it still hasn't changed. And continuing on to the end of history when we will experience the second coming of Christ himself, it still won't change. And even as we enter into eternity to come, it still will not change about God the Father. Now, I know that that's somewhat, at, if it's the first time you've ever thought about that, it, I hope it hasn't been the first time you've ever thought about it. But if it is the first time you've thought about it, it might be somewhat immediately discomforting. I know some would prefer to have a visible, tangible God the Father. Just because it's more, that, that way of revealing himself would be more easily identifiable and connectable to our hearts. Because we're all used to visible, tangible stuff for our relationships. But God has chosen to reveal himself as the ever and always invisible one. Now, God also knows and understands, though, that we need something tangible. We need some way of connecting in a more tangible way. And so what God the Father has done in his graciousness is he has revealed himself to us in the person of his son. And we're not to mix up one with the other, but the reality is God the Father will forever be invisible and God the Son will forever be visible from the point of his incarnation forward. Once he incarnated as a human being, he was made visible and he remains visible today. You and I haven't seen him in his physical state only because his physical body is located on the throne in heaven presently. But at the second coming of Christ, we're not going to have to wonder about his appearance. He will appear in a visible, tangible, physical form. And we will know him and see him as he truly is. But God the Father throughout that will remain invisible. So the, the issue then is, in the Old Testament, did God choose to remain completely and totally invisible throughout the entire Old Testament, Old Covenant time period? And the answer to that, just from the passages I already read in Isaiah 6 and 1 Kings 22 is, no, the God, the God of the Old Testament has chosen to make himself visible in very specific ways at very specific times in very specific locations, but every time he made himself visible, it was not God the Father making himself visible, it was God the Son. So I've said all of that just to establish the point that in my perspective, all theophanies, Old Testament appearances of God, are technically and actually Christophanies, Old Testament appearances of Christ. All right, so is everybody tracking with me so far? All right, now let's, let's try to establish a working definition of this 
theological term that I've been using. And then I said, in its, in its simplest base form, there's nothing wrong with the simple base definition because the word itself captures that definition. A Christophany is simply an appearance of Christ. But in order to clarify theologically what is meant and what isn't meant by that, a, a longer definition is helpful. And I'm going to give you here my own definition of Christophanies. So you won't be able to Google this specific definition. Um, you, this is simply my own understanding of what a Christophany is and what a Christophany isn't. And um, if you have any questions about the definition I'm about to give you, you're free to approach me uh, after the study and we can discuss it. All right, here's my definition of Christophanies. These are appearances of the Son of God in Old Testament history. In a Christophany, the Lord appeared in one location, in an actual, visible, tangible, and definite way. Christophanies are not permanent or lasting but temporary to that moment of history. Christophanies are not an incarnation. In other words, Christ did not become a man in these Christophany events. But they are instead a presentation. So not an incarnation, but a presentation. For example, when appearing as a human, the Lord did not become human yet. He temporarily took the form, but not the nature of a man. So as he appeared in Christophany form, as a, as a human being, for instance, the people that he appeared to, or the person that he appeared to, would be able to look at him and saw a man figure. But it does not mean, and we should not conclude, that in order to appear in that way, the Lord incarnated and actually became a human being. Now, let's look at one other passage from a prophet. The prophet is Micah. And let's look at Micah chapter 5. And you should find him just before Nahum. And just after Jonah. We looked at this passage when we were studying the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Christ. And it's an excellent prophecy of the birth of Christ, the entrance of Christ into the world as a human being. But it also contains Christophany elements in this prophecy. And we're meant to, even though Micah didn't develop all the details... We're, we're able to read this prophecy with the better and clearer vision of seeing what he was talking about after the events have actually happened. Uh, those that heard this before Christ ever came may not have fully understood and most likely did not fully understand what it was describing. But we should be able to understand it because we're looking back on the description after the events. So we're going to read from 
Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, here the prophet is, by the Spirit of God, speaking to the little town of Bethlehem, some approximately five miles south of Jerusalem. You know, the expectation would be, the focus would be on Jerusalem, if the Lord's addressing any city in the, in the uh, region of Judah. But instead, he focuses his prophetic attention through Micah on this little backwater town that had no real claim to fame other than what was about to happen there. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, meaning uh, it's a town of such small reputation that as the clans of Judah were organized, there was no real consideration given to this town. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now that is, along with the identification of the city of the little town of Bethlehem, that is the prophecy of the, what we call the first coming of Christ in his incarnation. Now you understand when we refer to the first coming of Christ, we're talking in terms of his incarnating as a human being. The whole point of our study of Christophanes is going to be to see that the, the incarnation, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem was not the first coming of Christ to this world. He came to this world multiple times prior to his incarnation. But it is his first coming as a human being. And so it is a special coming among the broader category of all the comings of the Lord Jesus to this world in the old covenant time period. So from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, meaning from the very beginning, from his birth, it's prophesied here by Micah that he will eventually rule over everyone and everything. But then this last line of verse 2 says this, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So we have two categories of comings that are identified in verse 2. One special coming that we rightly identify as an incarnation of being born as a human being in Bethlehem. But prior to that, Micah describes there have been multiple comings forth of this same person prior to his being born as a human being. Because his coming forth has been repeated and multiplied from of old from ancient days now how far back do his comings go well in the one um, the one christophany that we'll study at the end of our study tonight we'll see from the very beginning of history from the garden itself he has been coming forth not as an incarnated being but as a true appearance of the second person of the godhead a true appearance of the Son of God in a pre-incarnate form. Now, having defined our Christophanies, the next question I think we should tackle is, why? Why did God choose to reveal himself in this way in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? 
Why are there Christophanies in the Old Testament? Why didn't God leave his son somewhat in the background and then in a, in a great twist of history kind of reveal him all at once as he was born in Bethlehem and throughout the course of his 30-some years in this world. So, what's interesting is there's no explanation offered in Scripture in terms of, I can't take you to any specific passage in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, that says, okay, here is exactly why the Lord in the second person of the Godhead chose to reveal himself and appear at key moments of history throughout the Old Covenant time period, and this is why he did so. So there is no specific explanation that's offered in Scripture. There's just the appearances, and in a sense, they offer their own explanations. And as we study through them, we're not just going to be looking at what the appearances were, who he appeared to, when he appeared, and what the circumstances were, we're going to try together to discern and identify the reason why for each one of the Christophanies. But here's my own thoughts about the why behind all of the Christophany appearances of the Lord in the Old Covenant. And I think we're allowed to draw our own theological conclusions about his appearances. First, Christophanes reveal the extent of God's involvement in history. Um, Since God first made himself known as the high and exalted one, the one who sits upon the throne, the one who is in the heavenly and glorious realm, And we understand that this world is not high and exalted and this world is not the same as heaven. And the throne at this point in history is not located here on earth, but in heaven. And it's somewhat, even though it's connected and it's it's related, there's somewhat also because of sin and the fall, there's somewhat of a disconnection between heaven and earth. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it was automatic that everything in heaven was, was being modeled and, and lived out on earth in the same way as it is in heaven, there would be no need for salvation and redemption. There would be no need for prayer for on earth as it is in heaven. So because there's this disconnection and there's this somewhat spiritual separation between earth and heaven it would be possible for us to draw the conclusion that God is seated upon the throne, but he's, he's over there in heaven, up there on the throne, and the question would always remain, how involved is he? How engaged is he in the events that are taking place here in this world. And it's certainly true that the Lord could tell us with his words as he's revealed them to the prophets. And he has done this. He could tell us with his words, I'm there with you. I'm paying attention. I'm concerned about the things that are going on on the earth. I have a plan. It's, it's being worked out on earth. It's being worked out in history. He could tell us all of that. But there's something about personal presence. You know, if... Um, If someone says they care about you, 
They love you. They're, they're involved in your life. They're engaged with you. But they're not there for you in the most important times of your life. And there's a consistent pattern of them not being there for you. Because you know, on any one occasion, there might be an exception where they could not be there. But if they're never there for you in the most important events of your life, then you have good reason to question how involved are they really. And I think one of the things that the Christophanies do is they make it clear just how completely involved the Lord was from the very beginning of history and all throughout. And he is present and he is engaged when he most needs to be for our sake. Second, I think, of course, that the Christophanies reveal the future to us. They, are all, they all bear their own message about what was happening at the moment of the Lord's appearance on earth. But they speak about the future as well because we call them Christophanies. We're saying these are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. And since it's the same person before his incarnation and following his incarnation, his story doesn't start in Bethlehem. And of course, in the truest and ultimate theological sense, his story never starts because his story always existed. But in terms of our relationship to him and our understanding of his activity and his involvement, it, it helps us to look at the Christophanies because each one contains clues about the person and work of Christ once he does incarnate. And so the presentation of the Lord in the Christophanies will inform us more fully about the incarnation of the Lord as he later becomes a man. Now, I also believe this, and I kind of referenced this a moment ago. I I am convinced that each Christophany serves a specific purpose in God's revelation in history. Meaning that God is doing something special each time he appears on earth in the familiar ways that he does appear and that we're meant to be able to recognize what's going on in that appearance and what's so significant about this appearance in comparison as we look at the whole category of all of the appearances Each one is emphasizing something a little bit different than each other one. So we're going to be looking for that and we're going to try to identify the, the, in a sense, the substance theologically of each and every one of the Christophanies. All right, now, I've already mentioned that we're doing like a three-part study through Christ in the Old Testament. We've covered prophecies. We're just starting Christophanies, and later we're going to look at types and shadows. Let me just give you one example of a common misunderstanding about Christophanies, and let's turn for this one back to Genesis 14. And this is, a, to me, an excellent example of why, when we're studying these appearances of the Lord, we have to pay really close attention to the details in the appearances and the, um, the record of those appearances. By not paying close attention, we can cross category lines 
and draw conclusions about events that happen that we should not draw. This one is a very famous interaction between two important Old Testament characters. One of these characters at this point in his personal history is known by the name Abram. Of course, he's the same man that will later be renamed by the Lord as Abraham. But at this point, he's Abram. And Abram's story fills the, the, the middle chapters of the book of Genesis. And, and he has, there's just lots and lots of information about Abram. Here he's meeting with one particular mysterious character by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is only mentioned here. And then in a portion later in the book of Psalms. And then Paul will focus an entire chapter in the book of Hebrews in a consideration of the meaning of this brief interaction between Abram and Melchizedek that we're about to read. So let's read the story. It's from chapter 14 of Genesis. I'll start reading in verse 17. The backstory of what has happened here is that um, Abram's nephew, Lot, and his, his clan were all captured in a battle. And they were carried off as captives and all of their livestock were carried off. And Abraham or Abram has marched out with his servants forming a small army. He's marched out to try to rescue Lot by doing battle with those that have captured him. And those that have captured him are an army of kings, uh, an alliance of kings. And we're not talking about nation kings. We're talking about kings of various cities in that area. Reading from verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, so Abram is now victorious in the battle and he's returning from the battle, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. So Melchizedek blesses Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The everything here is not a tenth of everything that belonged to Abram, but he gave Melchizedek a tenth of what we would call the spoils of war. So in defeating the armies that he defeated, he gained possession of their stuff. And as he's returning, he is met by Melchizedek, he's blessed by Melchizedek, and then he honors Melchizedek by carving out a tenth of the spoils of war and transferring ownership from himself to Melchizedek in this circumstance. Now, Melchizedek is often identified by well-intentioned, good-hearted Bible scholars, not all of them, but many of them, as a classic example of a Christophany. What that would mean is that Melchizedek, if my definition of a Christophany is correct, and I made this emphasis in my definition, Christophanies are not permanent or lasting 
but temporary to that moment of history. So those that believe that Melchizedek was a Christophany would have to believe or draw this conclusion that Melchizedek had no existence on earth prior to this time, to this event. He, the Lord himself, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, materialized in a human form, took the name Melchizedek, met with Abram, blessed him, served him the bread and wine that he served him, received the tenth of the spoils of war from Abram, and then as soon as Abraham moves on to the rest of his life, leaving the presence of Melchizedek, that Melchizedek suddenly then disappeared and had no more physical presence on earth. I do not believe, and I'm 100% convinced, that Melchizedek should not be understood as a Christophany, but Melchizedek was an actual person who lived in history. So, does that mean that Melchizedek has no connection to Christ whatsoever? The answer to that is, no, that's not correct either. Melchizedek has a very important connection to Christ. Paul, later in the book of Hebrews, develops this in a lot of detail. I won't take us to the Hebrews portion in chapter 7 that, that does this extended teaching and, and reteach it. A few years ago, we went through the entire book of Hebrews and our Thursday night studies together, and we camped out for some period of time in Hebrews 7, and I made the point then that Melchizedek was not a, um, a Christophany, but an actual person. But the details are here right in the Genesis account. If we pay close attention to them, we, we wouldn't even need Paul's confirmation later in the book of Hebrews to draw the conclusion that Melchizedek could not possibly have been a Christophany. What's the detail we should notice? The very first mention of him is in verse 18, and we're told this about him. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, what does this tell us about Melchizedek? Prior to this moment, prior to this brief meeting with Abram coming back from the field of battle, the victorious field of battle, what does it tell us about Melchizedek? It tells us he had a life prior to this moment. And he was known. He had a reputation he had a position in human culture and society, and he was known by a specific title. That title here is, he was the king of Salem. Salem, of course, at this point in history is known just as the title or the, the name of the city being Salem, which is peace. But later in history, that name was expanded and became known as Jerusalem. So this man was one of the first kings of the city which would later be redesignated as Jerusalem. As a Christophany, he would not, the Lord would not appear as the king of Salem, having had some track record, some history, some reputation developed as the king. Abram knew him and recognized him as the king of Salem. And of course, uh, as a result, we should draw the conclusion that this was a man. He was a special man. And he does represent Christ, 
but he represents Christ in a symbolic way, which now puts him in a different category than Christophany. So we will study Melchizedek again when we get to the third segment of our Christ in the Old Testament study, when we look at the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. Different ways that the Lord represents Christ or symbolizes Christ for us points forward to some aspect of the person and work of Christ. And Melchizedek does this wonderfully in terms of how he serves Abram and the, the difference in their authority or the difference in their, um, their dignity, so to speak, in the story. Because in the story, one is serving the other and the other is being served. So it doesn't mean that Abram's greater than Melchizedek because he's being served. It means that Melchizedek is greater than Abram because he is serving him bread and wine like, of course, Christ served his disciples in the night of the Last Supper. And then, of course, Abram responds and blesses Melchizedek by offering him a tithe. And this is a picture of how the Lord calls us to make sacrificial offerings to him from our uh, resources as the Lord blesses us with those resources. And of course, if Melchizedek was a Christophany, the question would be, what happened to that tenth of the spoils that Abraham or Abram blessed Melchizedek with? So in the story, Abram leaves the scene. Melchizedek is left and he is possessor now, the righteous owner of a tenth of the spoils of war. If this was a Christophany, he would have disappeared. And that tenth of wealth and resources, the spoils of war would have just been left there on the field. And anyone could have come along and taken them, which would have undermined the whole purpose of Abram tithing them to Melchizedek in the way that he did. All right, so... I've been referring all along in our consideration so far of Christophanes as the Lord appearing in familiar forms. And for our understanding of Christophanes, I want to break those familiar forms into two categories. So whenever the Lord does appear, not just is symbolized like he was by, by, by Melchizedek, but he actually appears in a visible form in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, he does so in two primary ways, two categories of appearances. One is what we're going to identify as human Christophanies, where he appears in the form of a human being. He seems to be a man, but he's not. He's actually the Lord. The second category and we'll study these one after the other, of course. So I've got a list of Christophanies of the human appearances of the Lord in the Old Testament. And the second category is angelic Christophanies, where the Lord chooses to make himself known in angelic revelation or angelic form rather than human form. So why did the Lord choose these two different ways? of making himself known in Christophanies. Again, there's no passage that explains this for us. We're left to draw our own conclusions. My conclusion is I believe that the human Christophanies really emphasize the identification of the Lord with us as his image bearers. And I believe the angelic Christophanies, and we'll see this play out in, in the, the list of those, 
the angelic Christophanies really emphasize the heavenly distinction of the Lord from us. So in the human Christophanies, it's more an identification with us. The angelic Christophanies are more a a distinction from us, making sure we don't lose track of the fact that he is high and exalted and greater than us, more glorious than us, in the same way that angels are greater and more glorious than us. Now, in terms of the first category, the human Christophanies, and we're just going to start this tonight, and I said we're going to look at just one passage, and so you can start turning back to chapter 2. And as we head back there, Genesis chapter 2, keep in mind that with the Christophanies, again, they're all temporary. None of them are intended to be lasting. They're not like an incarnation. So when the Lord appears, the Lord Jesus appears as a human being, it's a temporary appearance. And when that appearance is finished, he no longer bears the form of a man. And he never becomes a man in terms of incarnation until Bethlehem. And when the Lord appears as an angel, he temporarily takes some form of angelic expression. There are different ones that we'll see. But he never becomes an angel, never takes on the nature of an angel any more than he takes on the nature of a human being. Now, in terms of the human Christophanies, um, there are more of these in the Old Testament. And, and, and actually, I'll just refer to the total number of Christophanies, uh, both a, a human and angelic. There are more of these in the Old Testament than you might think that there are at first glance in the Old Testament. Now, how many of you that are here have ever once in your Christian walk, have you ever read through the entire Old Testament? Has everybody successfully managed to make it all the way through the Old Testament? Good for you. Um, I hope as you've studied through the Old Testament or read through it, I hope that you noticed a few of these appearances, special appearances of the Lord in the Old Testament that we are now identifying as Christophanies. But what we're going to be doing for our study, and my list is growing as I'm going through different passages, but just so far I'm up to a total number of approximately 40 Christophanies in the Old Testament. And in in considering this, you might not have thought, you know, maybe there's three or four or five or six times where the Lord appears in a special way that would that would rank as a Christophany. But uh, so far I've discovered about 40 of them. We'll look at each one of those. And in the book of Genesis alone, it's the single book that has the most Christophany appearances of any book of the Bible. And I've found uh, 20 total Christophanies just in the book of Genesis, in the 50-some chapters of Genesis. And the first one, like in any other theological category, um, and this is what someone else coined, I didn't come up with this term, the principle of first mention comes into play, where the first mention of any one thing in Scripture is oftentimes extra significant and kind of helps shape our perspective and understanding of what to expect as, as there are repetitions of this same thing. So the very first Christophany is important. It's 
you know, they're all important because they're all appearances of the Lord. But I would, I would rank this one even above the others in that sense. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 2. And I hope you are familiar with and understand the principle that, that there are, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, there are two accounts of creation. There's all of chapter 1, in which we have the seven days of the original week of creation. And those seven days begin with the declaration in verse 3 of chapter 1 of let there be light, where the Lord, by speaking a word, begins the creation. And then categorized into each one of the six days of his work in creating, there are different things that he saves for different days of that first week to create. And then we get to the end of the chapter, and at the end of chapter 1, everything has been made that is going to be created by God. And at the end of that chapter, God rests from his work of creation on the seventh day, which then establishes the, the Sabbath pattern that we're familiar with, the day of rest. And then we enter into chapter 2, and the very first verse of chapter 2 is significant because it says, thus, referring back to chapter 1 and the whole account of chapter 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And if, it, if that, and all the host of them, if that sentence were all that were, was revealed in chapter 2, we might think, okay, we've got a full and complete and specific account of the original week of creation. But then what unfolds from that point forward in chapter 2 is it seems that God is still making stuff in chapter 2. Even though in verse 1 he's told us he's finished making everything, nevertheless in chapter 2 he's still making stuff, including Adam somewhere in the middle of the chapter, and Eve at the end of the chapter. And so what theologians understand is that it's not that chapter 1 is a full account of creation and then chapter 2 is something different and there's more stuff later that God creates, but chapter 2 goes back into chapter 1's events and specifically focused here on the events of the sixth day, the last day of God's handiwork in creation, the creation of humanity, and just fills out more details for us, gives us more information. So let's read from uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're looking for the first Christophany of history. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, meaning these are the rec- this is the record of their creation. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, and verse 7 introduces us to our Christophany. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, in verse 7, it's a fairly short verse, but there's so much packed into this brief description in verse 7. We could easily do an entire study just on this one verse, but let me, let me highlight a couple of important details here. They're based on two key words in verse 7 that give us hints of what's actually unfolding in this scene. Because all this actually described on the surface as it's translated into English and as we're reading it is that we're given more details about the moment that God first made Adam, the first man. And we know that it's the Lord God who is there on the scene in the garden and he is, he is making the man out of dust from the ground and he does another specific thing with him, which we'll focus on in just a moment. And as a result, the man becomes a living creature. And the word creature there is just the English translation of the Hebrew word for soul. He becomes, the man becomes a living soul as a result of the activity of the Lord. But it's not just that the Lord is spiritually present and he is not making the man in exactly the same way that he began the creation in chapter one of Genesis. In chapter one of Genesis, he began his creation by opening his mouth and speaking a creative word, light be, and light sprang into existence and all of creation along with it. Here, the Lord doesn't speak in verse seven at all, but he does two other things in relationship to the man that he's forming, which indicate to us that the man has a special purpose and the wholeness, the fullness of what God has already created. And so God is creating the man in a different way than he created everything else preceding this special creation. And the two key words that point to that for us are the words in verse seven, formed and breathed. So the Lord did two things with the man. He formed the man out of dust from the ground, And then having formed him, and what that simply means is he made a physical body, the very first human body, out of the the particles from the ground itself, the same elements that made up the earth. And having formed that body, he then breathed into the nostrils of this body, which was... At this moment, an unliving physical body, the Lord breathed into his nostrils. And when he breathed into his nostrils, the end result was with body and the result of the Lord's breathing into him, you have the result of the man coming alive and being now identified as a living soul. So these two words are are critically important. The first word is formed. And it's the same word that elsewhere in the Old Testament is literally translated as the word potter. The Lord pottered him. And it's just telling us, it's a word picture that's telling us that in what way did the Lord involve himself in the creation of Adam? 
He didn't stand apart from him and speak his body into existence. In a sense, the Lord got down probably on his hands and knees and and accumulated some of the, the material from the ground itself and then little by little, we don't know exactly how long it took, but it all took place within a single day. He, like a potter shaping clay into the form that he desires, he shaped this man kind of like a sculptor, but the sculptor here is a potter. He formed him in this, this, this uh, raw material into a human body. And that tells us that there was a physical, actual, real, tangible presence of the Lord in the garden working with this clay, working with his hands. God the Father is described from a high-level imagery perspective as having hands when we refer to the hand of God. But God the Father actually has no hands because he has no form. He is in essence spirit, not physical. But the Lord Jesus, in, even in his pre-incarnate revelation, takes on a human form and forms it like a potter forming clay. And then when the body is exactly the way he wants it, the second word is he breathed into his nostrils. And this is a Hebrew word which means to exhale in a forceful puff of air. So you would take a huge breath, inhale, fully filling your lungs, and in one forceful breath, he breathed directly into the nostrils of the man. And I think we're meant to see it as kind of a face-to-face breathing into his nostrils. Think of it this way, kind of like um, anyone here ever taken a CPR class? You know, and the the idea of of in, in certain special cases of CPR, they have you actually breathe, and at least in the old days, not so much in in the new form of CPR, but they have you breathe into the nostrils of the person that who who has stopped breathing. And that's what the Lord does here. With one single forceful breath, since it's coming from the Lord, this is what we can rightly identify as the breath of life. It fills the newly formed lungs of the man, and he, in that moment of the entry of the breath of life into his dust-like body, is transformed into a living, breathing soul, a human being who bears the actual image of God. Now, what is the special purpose of this particular, of this particular Christophany? I mentioned that I think that each Christophany has its own special purpose in what God reveals about himself, what he reveals about us, and what he reveals about his purpose for us and for history. In this case, I think the emphasis is on the correspondence between the Lord and his, his image, the one that he is creating to bear his image. And the correspondence is, is one-to-one. It doesn't mean we're exactly like God himself, but it does mean that we are, from the very beginning of his creative purposes, we are made to be like him. And he is intimately connected to humanity in that way. He's intimately involved in humanity in that way. And he has a special life-giving purpose 
toward those that he enters into this special relational uh, interaction with that later will come to be identified as a covenant relationship. All right, so we're going to stop there. We're uh, already a little bit over our time. Um, That's our introduction to Christophanes. Like I said, we've got about 40 to study, and I may end up uh, discovering one or two more even than that. So don't hold me to that specific number. And what we'll do is we'll study next week, Lord willing, we'll study by beginning the list of the human Christophanes, and we'll save for later in our study the study of the angelic Christophanes that we find in the Old Testament. All right, God bless you.